You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone and welcome to Not What You Thought You Knew, a brand new podcast series from History. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode we're in Edinburgh. It's 1826, George IV is king and the first railway in Scotland has just opened. Since the 1750s, Scotland has become a hub of intellectual and scientific debate and Edinburgh, its capital city, has earned the title of the Athens of the North. Students have come from across the United Kingdom to learn from the great masters who teach in this city. And now, it is the training ground of the man who would change the world. Let's take a walk through Edinburgh's old town, stopping at number 37 Lothian Street, the home of John Edmonston, who has been given the unprepossessing title of a bird stuffer, someone who teaches the university students the art of taxidermy. One diligent pupil is the 16-year-old Charles Darwin, Today, we recognise Darwin as the father of evolution, and the skills that Edmonston taught him in those tiny rooms on Lothian Street will lay the groundwork for Darwin's greatest discovery, the theory of evolution. But today, it's not Darwin's theories we're exploring, but the life of the man who taught him everything he knew about taxidermy. In each episode of Not What You Thought You Knew, we explore some astonishing historical characters to reveal not just their incredible stories, but also why their lives are so important. And in this episode, we're going to explore how an ex-slave born in the South Americas made the journey from his enslaved homeland to the life of a free man teaching taxidermy in Edinburgh in the early 1800s. John Edmonston was born into slavery in the former Dutch colony of Demerara, today part of Guyana. The plantation he grew up on formed part of the violent sugar and timber trades that the Dutch and British empires were built on. He is a man almost completely overlooked by history, and we only know his name thanks to the letters Charles Darwin left behind. He gave me lessons, the young Darwin wrote, and I used often to sit with him, for he was a very pleasant and intelligent man. Taxidermy is something that still divides people's opinions today, and so later in this episode I'll be speaking with Tannis Davidson, curator of the Grant Museum of Zoology at UCL, to understand a little more about the world of 19th century taxidermy and the part it played in the emerging scientific discipline of zoology. But first, to learn more about John Edmonston, I'll be speaking with the co-author of Great Black Britons about this amazing man's life.
Dr. Angelina Osborne is an independent researcher and heritage consultant with a PhD in history from the Wilberforce Institute for the Study of Slavery and Emancipation. She is also the co-author of 100 Great Black Britons, which will be published in September 2020. We're so excited to talk to you today about John Edmonston, who I believe is featured in your book. Yes, yes, he is. That's right. Can you tell us some more about him and why his story is so important to understand the lives of ex-slaves living in Britain? I mean, we really wouldn't know about John Edmonston uh, if it hadn't been for Charles Darwin, who makes two uh, um, remarks upon John Edmonston uh, uh, to his sister. He's writing to his sister Elizabeth. And uh, he says this uh, to her. He says, I'm going to learn to stuff birds from a blackamoor, I believe, an old servant of Dr. Duncan. It has the recommendation of cheapness, if nothing else, as he only charges one guinea for an hour every day for two months. So that's the only that's how we find out about uh, that John uh, that John Edmondson exists because he teaches Charles Darwin the art uh, the skill of taxidermy, mm. uh, stuffing animals, stuffing dead animals. So what's John Edmonston's story before Darwin? Okay, so John Edmonston, you can't really talk about John Edmonston without talking really about sort of Britain's involvement in transatlantic enslavement. Mm. You can't talk about, really, you can't really even talk about um, uh, Charles Darwin being a naturalist or any of or the other explorers, uh, in, in explorers during the imperial period, without talking about enslavement, Britain uh, at the end of sort of the Napoleonic Wars, or well, before the first wars uh, with France in the Treaty of Amiens in 1802, they acquire the um, the the colony, the former Dutch colony of Demerara, which is uh, present day Guyana. The first thing we need to know is that. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Charles Edmonston. Now, Charles Edmonston has uh, plantations, not only has plantations, he's uh, established a timber cutting estate in Mabiri Creek. And he becomes friends with a gentleman who's also, whose family also has slave holdings in Guyana, in Demerara, called uh, Charles Waterton. Now, Charles Waterton travels to uh, Guyana in 1804 uh, to take care of his family estates. He becomes friends with Charles uh, Edmonston and actually marries one of his daughters. He's 47. The daughter is 17. Um, Now, um, while he's there, he becomes extraordinarily interested. He becomes actually he's well known today as one of the pioneering naturalists and conservationists. And his property up in Yorkshire is where he actually built one of the first natural conservations. Now, he travels to Guyana on several occasions and he publishes a book called Wanderings in South America, the Northwest of the United States and the Antilles in the years 1812, 1816, 1820, 1824. And we think, we're not sure, but we think that his visit in 1816 is where he actually encounters John Edmonston, who is an enslaved person working on the, in the timber cutting um, site of uh, Charles Edmonston. So Charles Waterton teaches John the art of taxidermy because uh, he's so interested in um, conservation, interested in collecting these exotic birds, these exotic animals in Guyana during his travels there. And he teaches um, John how to preserve uh, birds 
very quickly because they would have started to degrade in the tropical heat very quickly. So he learns uh, his skill uh, from uh, Charles Waterton. Um, what happens is uh, after that is that um, Charles Edmonston, who has been had been living in uh, in in Guyana in in, in Demerara since 1780 returns to Scotland, his ancestral home. He returns to Scotland in 1817, and he brings John with him. We're not sure why he brings John with him, but he brings him back to Glasgow in 17, uh, 1817 before he moves to Edinburgh. Around 1822 uh, or 1823, and starts working as a bird stuffer. That's what he's described in the uh, Edinburgh Post Office directory as a uh, bird stuffer living at 37 Lothian Street. And is at this point, is he still enslaved or is he a free man? I'm assuming he's a free man. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been some sort of um, mis, uh, misinformation. There's been this assumption that in 1807, the abolition of the slave trade mm-hmm. uh, was passed. The act to abolish the slave trade was passed, which essentially meant that there was no more trade and trafficking in Africans. Uh, British, the British could no longer travel to the African continent and, and uh, traffic and enslave Africans and bring them over to the Americas. But it didn't mean that people uh, who were already enslaved were free. Uh, uh, Emancipation didn't take place until 1833. So certainly in 1817, legally, um, John would have been an enslaved person. So again, uh, we're talking about assumptions because we're not exactly clear, Mm. but it seems that um, Charles Edmonston and John parted ways at some point in Glasgow in the 1820s, and we can assume that he must have gained his freedom. How did that come about? How did that happen, this idea that you could give someone their life and their identity? Well, if you, if uh, the, the people who enslaved uh, uh, African, enslaved African people, they had the control over their life and death. So if they decided whether they wanted to emancipate, to manumit them, that's the word they used, it it was entirely up to them. It happened sometimes when that person was on their deathbed. They would say, as my dying wish, I I manumit so-and-so. He he or she is now a free person. Now, we know that um, Charles Edmondson actually died around 1827. So again, uh, again, without any real documentation, I think it's fair to assume that uh, once John and Charles had arrived in Scotland, he um, he would have probably, we, again, we're assuming that he said, OK, uh, I'll manumit you. You are a free person here in Scotland. So John Edmondson, who has spent his life as a slave in a sugar colony and, and working in timber, his torture a trade by someone who, who just desperately needs another pair of hands to help him stuff animals and stuff his, his specimens and then brought back to Glasgow and then finds himself, whether or it's to do with Scotland having made slavery illegal or simply that that his the man who had owned him for much of his life had decided to release him from those bonds. He now has to make mm-hmm. his own way of life. He now has to survive. He has to make a living and he has to forge his own identity. Yes. 
Uh, again, we don't have anything uh, written by John, no comments. We have no idea whether he had family. We have no idea what he thought about his situation. We have no idea, nothing uh, uh, nothing from John himself that talks about his experience, what he thought, thought or what he felt about this, about the situation. Well, let's, let's return to this connection to Darwin because we know that uh, by some point he had managed to set himself up as someone whom university students would go to. And I know you said earlier that Darwin, that amazing quote from Darwin, that it, it was so cheap. So we now we know Charles Darwin was now a very much cheapskate. Um, yeah. But he was going to Edmonston to be taught this incredibly vital skill. Yes. And that suggests that if he's if he's knows as a university student and that other university stu- students are going there, that whilst that while you know it might have been cost effective, he was also renowned as being skilled at what he did. And I I believe that in Darwin's letters he wrote fondly in the end about his relationship with Edmundston. Yes, he um, he described him as somebody who was very intelligent. That he spent many hours with talking about on a range of different subjects. And um, even though uh, uh, Waterton described him as not being particularly skilled at taxidermy, uh, certainly the museum in Scotland would uh, differ in that sort of assessment because uh, he's sort of recorded as um, selling them in significant um, amounts of birds and a boa constrictor, 15-foot boa constrictor wow. he sold to the museum. So with that period, you know, the period of the 1820s and 30s, which was very, very popular in terms of finding out about uh, different uh, flora and fauna, and I imagine that the need uh, for a taxidermist must have been um, very, very uh, high, you know, especially a skilled one when you consider it's around this period or maybe just about after when we had the development of all the museums, you know, the, certainly the museum uh, in Scotland and sort of the, the museums, the Natural History Museum down in London and all those. So they, these were very people who were in very high demand. Um, because people started to become very interested, certainly uh, British people interested in what was going on in the world outside of them. So they were bringing, uh, you know, these explorers and uh, these, uh, they were bringing the world to to London, to England, not just London, but to Britain, in fact. So um, I would imagine that Edmundston was very much in demand, as as we've sort of said, he was... um, teaching students at Edinburgh University uh, his taxidermy skills and and taught Darwin himself, who had initially was going to train as a medical doctor, but absolutely hated his lessons as a medical doctor. (laughs) He hated the the, the post-mortems and looking at uh, human corpses. It, It really sickened him. And he was really very much more interested in uh, naturalism and geology. And, uh, and, and this is um, why he went uh, to uh, John, who he dis- discovered that actually Darwin lived about 10 doors down from Edmundston. He lived uh, with his brother. He was living with his brother, Iran. <laughs> uh, Learners, as we said, he was charging a guinea uh, a day. So he was working uh, with uh, Edmundston, uh, Darwin for about two, two and a half months learning the skill of taxidermy. 
that's incredible to learn that this this friendship between these two men who lived in such close quarters and and shared this skill that became vital to Darwin to his legacy is one that we don't acknowledge or has has been forgotten and in many ways erased from our history how important is it now for us to understand conserve and showcase these histories of black Britons who weren't just born black British but were were ex-slaves who then were emancipated and made incredible legacies for themselves in the UK at this time um, well, I think it's, you know, it goes without saying, I think, in my view, that it's extraordinarily important that um, we are, have more um, greater awareness of the, the links, the, these global links uh, between Britain and the rest of the world in terms of trying to understand our current sort of uh, population um, makeup. And um, people often sort of mistakenly assume that, uh, you know, because of the mass migration from the Caribbean in in, in the uh, in the post-war years, that's why people of Caribbean and African heritage are here. Mm. Which is, you know, it's it's completely uh, false to say that. It is the um the first podcast that we did that we made in this series was looking at Black British history on the Mary Rose to show that to be Black and British is something that has occurred for centuries. But I think we often struggle through that narrative of wanting to be incredibly positive and to showcase these histories and to show that to be black and British has literally been part of our culture for a very, very long time. It's not a modern identity. We tend to shy away from the reality of Britain's culpability in the slave trade and the histories of enslaved British, black British people who, who have made their life here. Do you think that one of the reasons maybe we do this is because slavery we we like to attach this this incredible mythology to the fact that britain abolished slavery prior to other nations even though we were also instrumental in it i mean it's for me it's just i feel like some more comfortable with histories that we want to hear and we have to really sort of think about the histories that we need to hear okay that we need to learn about Mm. so when we're sort of mythologizing if we're talking about sort of the abolition movement um which is uh extremely valid but it just leaves this whole it suggests if we just concentrate on abolition that britain didn't have any involvement in 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 enslavement it Mm -hmm. just leaves like literally one half of the story completely untold I think um, people are uncomfortable uh, with this history, but if you, you know, you have to to face it um, because it is as valid. uh, It is why people started abolition in the first place, because of the fact that uh, Britain was involved in uh, enslavement. That's why they wanted to end it because we were involved in it. So just to talk about one thing and not talk about the other, I think does us all a bit of a disservice, to be honest. Remembering Edmonston's life gives us an insight into part of the reality of the slave trade and brings home Britain's culpability in this sickening part of our history that we as a nation often seem keen to forget. The grotesque idea that you could own another human being as property and leave them abandoned in a country they'd not grown up in simply because you didn't want to be responsible for them anymore might surprise us. But these histories are difficult for us as a country to face. We have to. Because denying them also means we deny the existence of people like John Edmonston. 
I think it's really important to understand a point Angelina made about what gets left out of the historical record. We have nothing written or recorded by John himself. Without Darwin, we would never have known that a freed slave became a tutor for university students in Edinburgh in the 1820s. It's histories like this that, to me, just make our past even more interesting and even more exciting. So now we've learned something about John Edmonston's remarkable life, I really want to understand the role that taxidermy played in the world of natural history and the emerging science of zoology. The taxidermy skills Charles Darwin learned at this young age would go on to help him preserve specimens on board his long journeys across the sea on board the HMS Beagle, and later to help improve his theories of evolution. But taxidermy was hardly a new skill in the 19th century, and so I want to know what role it had in the Regency world. To find that out, I've turned to Tannis Davidson. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, Tannis, you are the curator of the Grant Museum. Can you tell us what you are a museum of? Um, well, the Grant Museum is uh, the, well, the full name is the Grant Museum of Comparative Anatomy and Zoology. So we are, a, in all intents and purposes, a natural history museum. So we have specimens that cover the whole of the animal kingdom. So what is this science of comparative anatomy and zoology? Um, well, Grant originally had trained as a medical doctor um, in Edinburgh and um, he he qualified but then he preferred to study animal life um, so he became an invertebrate zoologist so I think he um, you know moved over to the animal kingdom so comparative anatomy is really the study of um, comparing different animals to see which ones are more closely related um, it was historically connected to anatomy so a lot of medical students would you know do courses in zoology um, again, you know, if you're considering that humans are part of the animal kingdom and um, figuring out taxonomies and how different animals and different species are related to each other, 
you would be looking at the morphological similarities and differences between different species to try to figure that all out, essentially. To, to the layperson, obviously, we understand that bodies decay. And for you to still have some of Grant's specimens, we're not talking just about skeletons, are we? We're talking about how they actually looked at the time. Yes. So um, even though this, you know our oldest specimens are from 1828, we do, you know, the bulk of our collection is, you know, from that era. So, um, you know, the collection was added to over the years. So we have a, a lot of material that comes into the museum, say, in the 1870s. And, you know, a, a number, we're now the last, the last university zoology museum in London. Um, so we absorbed a lot of collections in the 1980s from places like Imperial College, King's College, Queen Mary. Wow. So that, this would have been material from the 1820s, the 1830s, 1840s as well. So it is a very old collection. And we do have um, skeletal material. We've got dry things, skins, fluid preserved specimens, um, and some taxidermy. Now, taxidermy is why I'm really excited to talk to you because that's something that I'm fascinated by. How zoological artifacts and and all these different examples of creatures that we have have been were preserved both at the time and also have lasted for so long. So, can we talk a little bit about that? Um, preserving animals, you know, and skins has been going on for a long time. So, you know, the ancient Egyptians are often um, quoted as being, you know, the first taxidermists taxidermists. Um, they didn't really practice taxidermy in the way that we think of it today. So um, preparation was done on humans and animals. So it was mainly a desiccation or an embalming. So it wasn't that the skin was removed. Um, and of course, the Middle Ages and ancient Greeks, and ancient Romans, people have, or even earlier than that, of course, people have prepared mm-hmm. animal skins for, for clothing or um, blankets or whatnot throughout the ages. Um, But I think, you know, there's more of an interest in, you know, these exotic animals that, um, you know, as the world is kind of broadening its spectrum of discovery, um, there was, uh, you know, an interest to bring back the animals, these strange animals. And again, this is like the burgeoning science of um, understanding the animal kingdom and, you know, differences in figuring out sciences, differences between different species and how they're all interconnected. So there was a a kind of a scientific need as well as a, just a general curiosity mm. um, about, you know, what these weird animals look like. And, you know, if it's something that has never been seen before, you know, it'd be great to have evidence of that. So I think um, taxidermy was, you know, a way of preserving the specimens so you could show them. Um, it was a way of preserving, you know, the skin to show like the coloration, the size of the animals in, in understanding what these things were. So, I mean, in general, you know, taxidermy has changed a lot throughout the ages. Um, from all accounts, you know, in general, what happens is the animal is skinned and then the inside of the, you know, the fat is removed and it's, it's prepared in some way with preservative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, historically that would have been, you know, rubbed with borax or cedar dust or something like that to help it dry faster or just, you know, prevent insect um, attraction to the specimens. And then these things were generally stuffed. So you could stuff them with a variety of materials and, you know, you get a variety of results um, by, you know, whether or not the, the taxidermist who is performing 
um, the artwork had actually seen the animal in real life or not. So that you <laughs> yes, get a lot we... of strange taxidermy that has been created by people who have never seen the live animal. Um, <laughs> So, you know, they're, they're doing their best, but, you know, they're just stuffing the skin and there's no real connection to reality. So a lot of the early taxidermy kind of looks a bit wrong. It looks a bit <laughs> funny. Um, so that, you know, that's sort of dating to, you know, the 1750s, that kind of era, you know, right up into the Victorian times when it becomes more of an art and you get taxidermists, um, you know, it's, it becomes a skill in an artwork. And this is, you know, the Victorian interest in it all, where people wanted a little piece of exotic colonialism in their houses. And, um, you know, so it was a real, you know, a, a thing to have in, in your home as part of your decor. So you wanted to have realistic representations of these animals. So it became more of a, an artwork. So you get uh, more lifelike representations as you go through time. I know that the Victorians have this huge love of, of taxidermy. If you take somewhere like Quex Park, which is down on the Isle of Thanet, where they have these huge dioramas that were shot and brought back and then displayed to show a multitude of animals in what is believed to be or was presented as their natural habitat. And it was a way to not just educate, but also to show off what the rest of the world was like in a very real way. Yeah. Do you think that this is something that held, had a massive attraction to the 19th century audiences? I think so. And I mean, you can't really talk about Quex Park without mentioning um, colonialism. No. And I was actually, I visited the museum last week, in fact. Um, but um, yes, you know, I mean, it's, it's all linked into, you know, the, these colonial networks that existed at the time and, you know, Western people, the British Empire, you know, exploring these places and bringing back these exotic animals. So, you know, um, at Quex Park, yes, he was a big game hunter. There's no really getting around that. And then later, apparently, it was more of a conservation thing to educate the people. But, you know, really, it was it was showing off like these are the animals that have killed these are the animals that exist like it's wonderful you know of course everybody wants to see an elephant for the first time so there's you know it's it's not a leap of um or it's, it's not difficult to understand why that would be such a draw for for anybody would be it a museum environment or you know a big game hunter or just you know look at this unbelievable creature mm. and you know museums are kind of coming out of this age again often used to sort of justify colonialism you know these are the wonderful things you can get from the colonies like these wonderful animals and resources and things like that so i think it's you know taxidermy does have this you know link to colonialism in that way that um you know it, it needs to be recognized absolutely that. So if you it's much, it's much more likely that the the skinning and the preserving of the skins would have happened in situ because we know from famous other attempts to bring back bodies whole for example say Flinders Petrie who's the Egyptologist whose head was cut off and semi embalmed to be brought home highly unsuccessfully i believe it actually turned black on its route home we know that that to bring anything back from very far away back to the UK carried with it a huge amount of risk. So in this episode we're looking at John Edmonston back in the early 19th century who obviously didn't have access to a lot of the chemicals and refrigeration processes that maybe modern taxidermy might have. If you're John Edmondson and you get greeted with these incredibly exotic skins from birds to mammals to large to large beasts 
How do you go about being in the UK and then making these incredible works of art? Well, um, now, John Edmondson learned taxidermy, apparently, from someone called Charles Waterton. And Waterton had a very specific technique that he used, and it was um, the specimens weren't actually stuffed, so they were soaked in a sublimate of mercury, so mercuric chloride, um, and this allowed the penetration of this mercury salt to aid in the preservation throughout the skin. So the animal would be immersed in this concoction for a number of hours, and then you know it had, would have been skinned by that point. And then the skin was dried naturally by the fire, filled with chaff, and then you know as it's sort of cooling and hardening, you could mold the skin in a lifelike pose. Um, and this took a number of, of weeks for it to happen, and then the chaff was eventually removed by a little window slit. So what's what's chaff? Is it is it a clay like a, or a, a straw, a straw fill, or something like that? Whatever you had on hand, essentially. Um, so apparently, this um, you know, there were no wires involved, and he was he was really into creating these natural looking poses, whereas before they were kind of unnatural. Hmm. But this process took a long time. So by all accounts, it wasn't really adopted by anyone beyond Waterton himself. So, you know, learning this, I, you know, was trying to find this link, what exactly did Edmondson learn from Waterton? So he probably learned that, um, you know, that that takes a long time and perhaps it's not the most uh, practical way of preserving these specimens. So given what we think, you know, these skins were sent in the field, they would have been originally, you know, again, some cedar oil or some kind of anti pest thing, you know, repellent, you know, put on the skin in order to ship them back. So he would have received these skins kind of already pest proofed, Hmm. I would imagine. So, you know, as what happened during the day, you you can imagine that you you could do um, preserve or sorry, present the skin on top of the mold. So besides just a stuffing of cotton, perhaps a, a wood mold or something would be made underneath and the skin shaped around it and then stitched up. Eyes, of course, would be added later. You know, you could find these glass eyes, and as you know, taxidermy really took off in the museums. They would supply these eyes. So, I would imagine that Edmund Stone would have said, oh, "Can somebody make me these eyes? I need these for the taxidermy." Mm-hmm. Um, being able to create create these wood mounts, and then with or with wire inside to give them a more lifelike pose. So, I would think that Edmundston um, would have, you know, if anything, learned you know, the importance of having taxidermy in more of a realistic pose. And he would have, I would imagine, trying to create that with his specimens. Now, I know Edmonston um, taught Darwin in when Darwin was in Edinburgh. And most of the Darwin specimens that we have, not in the Grant Museum, but elsewhere in the UK, are prepared as study skins. So those are not really mounted in the same way that taxidermy is. So again, these were collected on the beagle voyages and these would have been prepped in the sort of the basic way of skinning the animals, taking the fat off, preserving them with some oil, anti-pest oil or something like that, and then stuffed with cotton. Um, you know, again, study skins take up less room and, you know, if these are going to be scientific specimens, 
um, you wouldn't necessarily have them on display in a museum setting. You've talked about taxidermy as having been an evolving art form from the kind of dubious 50, um, 1700s origins of, of these very strange specimens through to the art form that is perfected, say, by the middle of the 19th century. Is that a process of not just taxidermists, but also working hand in hand with people like Darwin, who are reliant on bringing back accurate depictions of these new animals that they're finding from beautiful illustrations to the the skins themselves? I guess so. And I mean, while you have taxidermy developing, again, this this want of um, displaying animals in their lifelike poses in, in your country house or your, your museums for whatever reason, you do have the need, the other side of it are the study skins, so the, the animals that are collected for scientific purposes. So these are things that are not going to be on display. Um, you, you need to have the kind of the skin and, and the feathers to show what the animal looks like. And, you know, new species are being described at, these, at this time. Um, and this is how it how it goes today as well, if you know, in, in birds and mammals and things like that. So you would have different um, requirements for how you want to preserve the animal. Ultimately, um, you know, the bottom line is you want the specimen to last, whether it's for research or for your museum display. So um, you know, you're up against pests and decay and rot, so that has to be taken care of. And then the ultimate shape of the thing depends on what you want it to be. Um, so yes, yeah, certainly, you know, zoology has played a part in how taxidermy has developed, um, because certainly the zoologists were the, you know, the people that wanted the specimens either for display in the museums or for research. So they would have been working alongside with um, taxidermists or you know people who are creating the specimens for them. Now, in the Grant Museum, you have something like sixty-eight thousand specimens. That's right, yeah. You must have a favourite in amongst all of those incredible pieces. Um, There's a a few that I like. Um, (laughs) One, I I can tell you, actually, just because we're talking about taxidermy, um, our our newest specimen in in the museum is actually a taxidermy chicken. (laughs) And it's a a fan favourite. Its nickname is Chikorina. (laughs) This was was a chicken that was uh, commissioned about three years ago for a special exhibition that we had in the Grant Museum about, um, you know, science and ordinary animals, the boring beasts that changed the world. So the stories of chickens, mice, cats, and dogs, and how they have contributed to science. So we uh, wanted to tell the chicken story. And so we had this taxidermy chicken produced for us. And um, this was made by an ethical taxidermist who only uses animals who have died by natural causes or by roadkill. Um, and so we know the whole life story or the death story of this chicken. So it came from a chicken rescue farm in Brighton. And we know the date it died and it died of old age. And it was um, produced without any harsh um, arsenic chemicals and things like that. And we, we know all the materials, there's balsa wood inside. And you know, we have a video of it being made and everything like that so it's, it's kind of a nice um, story to tell alongside of our other taxidermy which has a lot of heavy metals and arsenics and kind of nasty chemicals on it because they're quite old and it is a natural looking chicken 
Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why we, we got it is because you don't often see chicken taxidermy in museums because everybody <laughs> knows what chickens look like. Um, but, you know, so that was kind of a unique thing. And it's, it's one of our more popular specimens, definitely. That's incredible. Tannis, it's so good to know that while we may think taxidermy is the stuff of the dead, it's actually very much alive and kicking in the modern age. Absolutely, yes. What a fascinating subject and an amazing collection Tannis oversees. I have a better understanding now of the skills John Edmonston was teaching Charles Darwin and just how skilled he himself must have been to be able to recreate these complex animals, returning them from death to the representation of life. And I think that's something historians do. We're trying to breathe life back into the past and recover those who've been lost that have meant so much to others. That's the purpose of this series, to explore those unexpected parts of our history and to tell you a story that is not what you thought you knew. That's it from us for this episode and the last one from us in this mini-series. If you want to see where Darwin lived, just a couple of doors down from Edmonston, there's a plaque marking the spot on the wall of the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. If you want more episodes from me and not what you thought you knew, please let history know and rate and review the series on your podcast app. You can also tweet using the hashtag NotWhatYouThought or search for History UK on social media. And finally, a big thank you to my guests, Dr. Angelina Osborne and Tannis Davidson. Please head to history.co.uk to find out more about Not What You Thought You Knew. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr. Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.